Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, and welcome back to the Racing Beat Podcast. We've been on a hiatus the last few weeks, but we're back and ready to rock and roll, just in time for the world's biggest race, the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500. We have a real treat on this week's edition of the Racing Beat Podcast. Our guest is veteran motorsports writer John Orovitz, whose new book, Indy Split, will be released this coming Sunday, also the same day as the Indy 500, and quite poignant, I might add. There's good reason for that, because the book is being released on that particular day as John tells the story behind one of the biggest and most controversial divorces of sorts in all sports, not just motorsports, when the upstart Indy Racing League and Championship Auto Racing teams went their separate ways in 1996. The split was devastating to open-wheel racing in the U.S. and allowed NASCAR to step up and fill the void, needing just a few years to become the most dominant motorsports series in the country. What's more, even though the Indy split was 25 years ago, the angst, anger, and bitterness still remain to a degree today, and John chronicles all that in an outstanding fashion. We had a fascinating interview with Orbitz, and this is both a podcast and a book you don't want to miss. Speaking of which, you can pre-order the book at octanepress.com. John is a former colleague of mine at ESPN.com, and his research, recall, and analysis definitely make this book a winner. So, just in time for the Indy 500, let's play our interview with John Orovitz right here on The Racing Beat. Welcome back to The Racing Beat. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, and it's my pleasure to welcome in John Orovitz. And he has got an exciting new book that's coming out just in time for the Indy 500. Couldn't be better timing because this book, Indy Split, is the name of the book, is going to talk, talks about, you know, we go back 25 years to when CART and the Indy Racing League went their separate ways. And it took quite a bit of time before the uh, racing, you know, the open wheel uh, IndyCar style racing series, both of them merged back together. So John, first of all, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You know, this, I've got to figure, you know, I haven't seen the book yet, but I've gotten press, you know, clippings and all that kind of thing, uh, press releases. This has to be a a thing that I would consider probably a labor of love for you. And, And tell me about how you came up with the idea, how long it took you to write the book, you know, that kind of thing. Well, thank you for the kind introduction, Jerry. I hope to see you again at the track soon when things are a little less crazy. For me, this is a, it's, it's literally a lifetime project because when I was a teenager getting interested in car racing, um, and the first time that I went to the Indianapolis 500 in 1978, it coincided with the original USAC and CART split. So while the focus of my book is on 1996 to 2008, the fact of the matter is, is that that split was the result of a split that never really got resolved in the late 70s. It just kind of hung on slightly under the surface for 15 years. And people papered over the cracks and, and hoped things would get better, but they got worse instead, uh, for, for some people at least, uh, better for others, you could argue. Uh, anyway, the, the, the genesis of it was the fact that I grew up watching this and I was fascinated by it. And then of course, I've been reporting or working in the industry since 1993. So for the second part, for the actual split that, that people think of, uh, I had a front row seat covering it in the media. And for a couple of years of that, 
um, working for one of the teams on the cart side of the ledger. Um, it's, it's obviously the dominant story of IndyCar racing. I mean, not only the last 25 years, but the last 50 years. Uh, and I think to tell the story properly, you have to go back to the reasons for the 79 split, which kind of coalesced in the 60s with the rear engine revolution and the changing of guard of the team owners and just the overall professionalism of the sport and the fact that the Speedway and the United States Auto Club didn't keep up. Uh, so the genesis of the split honestly goes back to Tony Holman purchasing the Speedway in 1945. So essentially what I've come up with is a, a post-war history of IndyCar racing uh, with, with more of a focus on the politics. And, but unlike, uh, like, unlike other people who try to tackle the topic, I think you have to, to blend in not just the politics, but the personalities, the technology, the pop culture of the time. It's all one big fascinating mixture, and, and hopefully it ends up being a, a compelling and cohesive read. Was it a hard thing to... I mean, go back not only to 96, but like you said, go back to 79. I mean, was it difficult to, you know, A, get people to talk about both splits, if you will. And secondly of all, you know, again, how long did it take you to kind of, you know, weave all this stuff together to come up with Indy Split? One of the things I wanted to try to avoid was just having people, at least in the main narrative of the book itself, was have people armchair quarterback or, 2020 hindsight at all mm -hmm. so having having since the late 70s having gone through the cart USAC era and the growth of cart as a fan and I was a pretty serious fan I mean it got to the point that I'd travel to five six races a year and, and um, sit out on the hillside and have fun um, since 93 I covered it professionally so what I did was I used media reports of the time to try to keep the, the telling of the narrative current. Um, and obviously I had a rich historical uh, group of references to work from, whether it was Indianapolis newspapers. And I, I mean, honest, honestly, what drew me into the sport back in the seventies was, was Robin Miller, right. uh, you know, in the Indianapolis star and, and, uh, and reading Rob Walker formula one reports and road and track, but I had an appreciation for journalism from the time that I was a kid. And it's all part of the story of how I got here. Uh, and since 1993, so for nearly 30 years, I've had my own personal archive of working as a reporter. So um, in some ways, it was a very easy story for me to tell. I mean, when I went back and I was researching the 70s and 80s, I, it was like walking down memory lane, seeing the old memorable columns, you know, Robin Miller, Speedway Purse, Million Dollar Crumbs, you know, things like that. Right, right. Um, I remember it all from, from reading it the first time. Um, so it, it triggered a lot of memories and, and obviously it's a lot of those memories from those days were great being a fan in the eighties and, and watching the growth of the sport and going to places like Cleveland road America and ultimately long beach, Toronto, Nazareth, and everywhere you went, there were, you know, packed grandstands and, and full fields of, of, of a, you know, arguably the, we like to talk about how strong the IndyCar field is right now. And don't get me wrong. It really is. But in terms of name brand value and everything, when you go back to the 80s and you had Danny Sullivan and Rick Mears and uh, in the early part, the Unser brothers and Al Jr. and Michael Andretti and Mario Andretti. And, and then you, when you threw in on top of all that and, and the oval racing and everything, and then you started to throw in the international aspect with the cars getting closer to Formula One and Teo Fabi, Emerson Fittipaldi, Nigel Mansell. 
it was just really this perfect mix for a while of, of international racing and American racing. And, and then, uh, and then one fellow decided he wanted to see it more American. Tell me about that. I wanted to ask you that. I mean, I was gonna ask you later, but I mean, since you brought it up, I mean, uh, you know, Tony George, you know, has both been vilified, but he's also been looked at as by some people as somewhat of an, a visionary that the vision just didn't work. A lot of it, you know, politics was involved in it. Um, I understand that Tony obviously wanted to make it more of an American series, uh, you know, an all-American series, uh, many people thought. But the, just the dichotomy, the, the dynamic of how he went about building the IRL and then shutting the door on cart. There are still people today that still talk about that, and they still are upset, even though, you know, there was a reunion back in 2007, 2008. Right. Um, but they still, they still talk about that. Uh, I know Tony's kind of moved on from that. Um, you know, he's, he's gotten back into the good graces of a lot of people. But can you kind of talk about, like you were saying, about that vision that he had? And was it right for the time? Was it wrong for the time? Could he have done it at another time? I mean, just how do you kind of analyze how that whole thing kind of came about? Well, first of all, I think his timing was extraordinarily bad. If, if not bad, but just mysterious, because when he started the IRL, he announced it in 1994. He, it started in 1996. IndyCar racing was the most successful it had ever been in this country as a whole. And again, you have to take this as a whole. The Indy 500 had remained just as successful as it always had throughout the 80s and 90s. It was still in a steady holding pattern. It, could, it didn't really have much growth it could have done. What The reason that CART was formed in the late 70s in the first place is because it needed the entire series to perform. That wasn't happening under USAC in the 70s. CART didn't go out to, to take over the Indy 500 or take over running the technical side of the sport or anything. They simply wanted it they simply wanted it marketed better and administrated in a more effective way so that it, they could make a business out of it instead of just being rich guys that ran the Indy 500 every year. CART succeeded in that. That was, that was what they were successful in. They were successful in taking IndyCar racing from a backwater sport that included this one giant event, the Indy 500, into a, a, you know, a successful worldwide series that actually had the attention of Bernie Ecclestone in Formula One that had nationally here the attention of Bill France and NASCAR. So it was successful at the time that, that Tony started the IRL. And that was the, that was the strange thing about it. Um, I know he was worried about the future of oval tracks and, and, and he likes to say that, you know, it was about oval tracks and American participation and, and making the cars less expensive. All of those things were noble goals. Um, they were all worthy goals, but Collectively, given the way IndyCar racing had developed since the 60s, since through the 70s and the 80s to where it was at, at its successful point in the mid 90s, to want to take it back to where it was in 1971, it, it just it didn't make any sense. And ultimately, I think it didn't work. Um, so we ended up having this 12 year period of conflict that, that went through two groups of management because one group thought it was important enough to keep it going and did keep it going for another years. And there was this unification or amalgamation or merger or whatever you want to call it that happened in 2008. And yes, it, it did make a lot of the bad feelings go away because there was the feeling that yes, it was finally all operating under one roof, but it's my own personal opinion that 
there wasn't any real closure until Roger Penske actually purchased the Speedway and the IndyCar series and actually gave it a, a fresh new identity and a fresh start um, that was not under the, the umbrella or the shadow of the Holman George family. Right. Going back to when Tony created the IRL, was it lack of foresight? And I, again, I'm not trying to point a finger of blame at him, but the fact that he decided to go forward with the IRL, and I'm, I'm sure you probably mentioned this in the book, the fact that he went forward with the IRL without the bigger name owners, the bigger name drivers. I mean, I, it almost was like he went from the major leagues of IndyCar racing to double A. Well, he did. So he yeah, did. And, and, and that's, you know, that's unfortunately, that's the legacy. The legacy is, is that Tony took the Indy 500 from being the Yankees to being the double A, marketed it as the Yankees, the Indy 500, because people wanted to hold on to their seats and because it was still a glorious event and everything, it survived it. I mean, its attendance went down 30%, let's say. But what really got affected, and this is what Tony set out to save, was Phoenix, New Hampshire, places like that, Milwaukee, ultimately. Because what happened that, and it started instantly with the IRL, when people went out to Phoenix in 1996 and they were getting Joe Gosick and Jim Guthrie, and, and all right, honestly, Tony Stewart, he, he wasn't the Tony Stewart he is now. And, and he is the one true success story that, that, you know, that the IRL made. But they got sold a bill of goods. And that's why nobody showed up for those IRL races. And the ultimate effect that that had is it devalued the oval side of IndyCar racing. The oval, the attendance never recovered at oval racing. Never. Uh, and it stayed strong at ovals in, in cart until the turn of the century. Um, I mean, honestly, if you go back and, and yes, people will say, well, Marlboro papered the house and Toyota papered the house. And yes, of course, there's an element of that. There'd be an element of that right now if there were sponsors that big in the series. Right. Um, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, it, it still looked good on, on the cart side till the, till the turn of the century. And the IRL just looked like a shambles. You had these, especially in 97, when they brought out the, their own cars and, and these engines, which, you know, that sounded like stock cars and didn't sound like Indy cars. So you had these no-name drivers and big, ugly cars that, that you know, looked like a child drew them. And, and, the, and they sounded incongruous to Indy car racing. And it just, it, it, it knocked it knocked the oval side of the equation really out of whack. And, and even when it all came together and it does have all of the stars and everything now, it just, it, it's never really recovered. And you can see that you can see it in the way the schedule is. Nobody wants the schedule to have, you know, 12 road races and three oval races. They'd love to have a, their ideal balance would be a 50, 50 mix. None of these oval promoters can make a business case for it. They can't get a title sponsor anymore. And if you're selling 10, 15,000 seats, you can't, pay a sanction fee. Right. So in theory, if they want to, if they want to rebuild the, the oval side of it, they've got to have a completely different business model. Did, did Tony, now I, I remember back, I was covering IndyCar obviously back then for, for USA Today and uh, then, you know, other outlets as well. There were a couple of efforts early, like around 2001, 2002, again, 2005, I believe it was. There were some efforts from some of the, the major owners to approach Tony, say, hey, look, this has gone on long enough. You know, let's let's have some kind of a uniformity. Let's get back together. But he didn't he didn't take that that carrot, if you will. Why didn't he? The theme of it all is that the lack of respect between 
Tony in the speedway side and the cart side. Ultimately, that's why the conflict occurred. There was a generational gap in the Holman family that went from Tony Holman to his grandson, Tony, Tony George. There was no middle generation of the family that, that kept the bridge going. So they put Tony in charge when he turned 30. And it, it might have been a little bit too early. And certainly from the card executive's perspective, he was a little wet behind the ears and he came in there pretty aggressively. And, and he made an offer to try to acquire or take over or have a much larger part in the series in late 1991. And, and, and he turned them away. And, and Robin Miller will tell the stories that, you know, Tony would go to these cart meetings and, and you know, Robin's source was guys like Tony Bettenhausen, uh, who Tony would fly to the meetings with. And, and he'd come out of these cart meetings and he wouldn't say a word in the meetings, but as soon as he got out, he'd just be MFing them. <laughs> and after the Houston meeting where they politely told him thanks, but no thanks, uh, he basically vowed, I'll get those guys. And the result was the IRL. And he was just so disrespectful and angry toward them that he didn't care how much money he spent. He didn't care what it took. And I mean, he had blinders or red mist or whatever you call it. He, yes, he was convinced he was saving his family's piece of the pie and everything, but a lot of it was just driven by blind rage that those guys shut him down. And uh, the lack of respect from, from Cart toward Tony, and, and if not toward him, the position that he was in when they put him in the position of being the leader of the Speedway, uh, and, and his, Tony's lack of respect toward what Cart did for IndyCar racing. And this goes back to building it from, you know, Trenton and Texas World Speedway and no TV and everything to Long Beach and, and everything that, that we knew and loved by the time the mid-90s rolled around. Uh, and, and it was that fundamental lack of respect for each other that they just, they never got over. And, and you know, the um, once Tony decided to lock in the 25 and eight rule, the 75% of qualifying positions at all IRL races, uh, you know, cart dug in, they started the US 500. They just, they just entrenched each other. Right, right. And, uh, I want to ask you more questions specifically about the book, but I want to have one other follow-up question about Tony George. Um, you know, he and his family sold the Speedway and all the properties, the uh, IndyCar, to, uh, to Roger Penske a little over a year and a half, well, roughly about a year and a half ago. Um, what's Tony doing these days? Is he still involved in racing? It, where Where is his place, if you will, in racing, uh, you know, in terms of, um, how other people react to him and what he's doing. Well, you know, he keeps, he, he's always kept a very low profile. He's, he's not a comfortable public figure. Um, he's done one major interview since 2010 with Holly wow. Kane. Wow. Um, and, you know, you, I, it's hard to say over the last year because it's because of COVID you can't, you can't look at last year. You know, so they sold the Speedway at the turn of the start of 2020, but none of the races last year were normal. So it, it's, it's hard to tell whether Tony would have been out there or not. The bottom line is, is that he is the U.S. distributor for Sonax, the German car care products company. Uh, he, has a, he has a small role in Ed Carpenter racing. Um, you know, he's, he's, it's not like the vision racing days where he was the, the figurehead, um, right. you know, it's, it's, it's Ed's team and, and Tony's there to provide a, a shoulder and guidance and everything. But, um, you know, to the best of my knowledge, he's enjoying his retirement and, and I hope he does, you know, it's, I, I hope he's, I hope he's found 
peace after what had to have been a pretty tumultuous time at the head of car racing. When you were writing the book, what was the best story that you came upon? The best story I came upon was before I was actually writing it. Okay. (laughs) And to, to tell you how I was I mean, just to tell you a little bit about the genesis of it, when I worked for ESPN.com, when they ran the one at the 100th anniversary of the first Indianapolis 500 in 1911, I wrote a history of the Speedway in kind of a 10-part decade-by-decade thing. And so in, in 2017, when I was kind of looking for things to do, I kind of went back and used that as the basis. I thought, well, I'd, let's, I've always wanted to do a book about the split. It's all Nobody's really done it right. Nobody with a skin in the game has, at least. So, so I got started on it and, and obviously I got, you know, digging back into my own archive and, and probably my favorite story, it, it came from 2008, I want to, I want to say, it might have been the summer of seven. I called Mario Andretti to, to write a story about Marco for a Japanese magazine. Right, right, right. And unprompted in the middle of our conversation, Mario just started talking about, you know, I'll tell you something. I and, and he told a story about how he'd gotten Tony together with um, Paul Newman and and uh, Kevin Kalkoven. and and uh, and then he thought he had a deal together, and 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 then Tony at the last minute blew it up, and that's a common theme. Whether it was ninety five, ninety nine, you know, at the last minute, Tony's always the guy that said ultimately said no to to a deal, right. And Mario gave me the quote. He says, I got him to the altar several times. I just couldn't get him to say I do. <laughs> and, and I thought this was a great story because he, he was, he was, he was, our conversation was, it weaved on and off the record. And I, it was pretty clear to me what was not on the record, but the stuff that he talked about that meeting, I thought that was fair game. <clears throat> so I wrote a column for ESPN and I went to the race at Watkins Glen that weekend. And I got out there and I, everybody loved the column, you know, and Robin Miller himself said, oh, man, those are the best quotes ever. About <laughs> the, you know, I got into the altar. Line. So I'm feeling good about myself. And I drive home on Monday and at 830 Tuesday morning, my phone rings and it's Mario. And he's like, ah, what have you done? You know, you, I, 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 you know, Tony's pissed and, the, you know, Cal Coleman's pissed. And, and, <laughs> and I was mortified. I mean, I've I've always tried people think I'm critical, but I've always tried to be fair. And it's very rare. I've gotten a call like that. Um, and, and it was Mario freaking Andretti. So, so I'm mortified. And my response was, I actually wrote a really heartfelt letter and I sent it to Tony and Cal Coven and Mario. And I'm like, look guys, the only reason I did this, it's not to piss anybody off. It's because I love IndyCar racing. Right. This needs to get together. We need to get the sport growing again. And, you know, I mean, I saw Mario two weeks later, I think at Edmonton and he did a presser and, and he looked at me and winked and, and I went up to him afterward. I'm like, are we okay? He's like, Hey, bad boy. Yeah, we're fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that was the funny thing. I mean, writing the book, I mean, it was, it was doing a lot of research in newspapers and national speed sport news is from the seventies and eighties and everything. But other than that, it was, it was kind of digging through my own archive and, and uh, just triggering memories of it all, whether it was through research or, uh, or talking to people. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I had some really, I was fortunate over the years to have good relationships with people like Mario. Cal Coven was great. Calvin, Cal Coven really know how to work with the media and, and, you know, what to give you off the record and, and uh, clue you in on things and everything. And from the modern area, 
era guys like uh, Ari Leyendijk, Dario Franchitti, um, always had a good relationship with Andrew Craig. Andrew was pretty forthcoming. And, and for people like that, for people who did want to have something to say about the split, I gave them their voice at the end of the book. I didn't want to weave it into the narrative, but there are, there's opportunity for half a dozen guys at the back of the book from Dr. Steve Olvey, uh, people like that to, to just kind of tell their story of their life in IndyCar racing and, and how it all affected them and their hopes and dreams for it all. You raised a point that I wanted to ask you about was, and I hate to ask this, but I, you know, to be fair, were there any people that you reached out to to interview for the book that still didn't want to talk about it, about the, you know, about the split? Well, I mean, there's the people that just didn't answer. I mean, uh, I reached out to Tony by text and, and email and didn't hear anything. And I reached out to Forsyth through an intermediary and didn't hear from him. But honestly, the only guy that, that, that who I offered an opportunity to do one of these perspectives, you know, at the back of the book and say, hey, you want to tell your story uh, was Rick Mears. And um, I mean, I'm a huge Rick Mears fan. I was, right. I was a Rick Mears fan growing up and everything. And I have, honestly I have an outstanding relationship with Rick. And I'm disappointed, but not surprised because he is a, other than the fact that he listens to a lot of right wing, right wing radio, he is a non-political guy. Uh, he never from, you know, from the seventies, eighties onward, he, he never got involved in the politics and he still doesn't want to. So, right, right. Um, so it would have been nice to have his, his voice in there because I'm sure Rick has some things to say from his perspective, being with Penske and on the cart side, and then being one of the first teams to make the full-time move back to the IRL and everything. So, but yeah, for, for the most part, if I wanted to talk to them, they were willing to talk to me. Right. And, and again, I, from 1993 onward, I have, I have an archive of, you know, literally hundreds of interviews that I'd already done. So um, right. you had a great reference material for sure. Yeah. I mean, literally I had, I had it uh, in the words of the bootleg recordings. I had zero gen recordings of, <laughs> of many of these interviews. <laughs> exactly. You, know, you said something earlier that, you know, kind of piqued my curiosity about, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, we had such household names. We had Rick Mears, we had AJ Foyt, Mario Andretti, Michael Andretti, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you look at IndyCar today? I mean, they are building themselves back up. Obviously, with Rogers' uh, stewardship, they're going to continue to build. But, of course, we couldn't really gauge much from last year because of the COVID. You know, the, 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 uh, the season was shortened. Where do you see the series going, let's say, five years from now? Next three to five years. I mean, uh, there's a lot of question marks uh, in some areas. There's a lot of solidifying in other areas. Where do you see you know the, uh, the series going between the next three and five years? It actually looks pretty good to me right now. Um, the one amazing thing is, is that there is this core group of stars that carried IndyCar racing from the late 60s all the way to the 90s. Mm -hmm. Mario and Foyt being the, the, you know, the guys that went the distance. Right. But one of the themes that emerges is that USAC quit producing stars in the 70s. You know, after that group of guys that came out in the 60s, I mean, you can talk about Poncho Carter, and but, but the bottom line is that USAC didn't produce a star championship winning IndyCar driver since, you know, since the days of the 60s until they tried to force them back in, right, in the IRL era. And of course, Jeff Gordon went to NASCAR and suddenly that was the blueprint. Um, which right down the street in Pittsburgh and, you know, he goes the other direction, right? Oh yeah. Pittsburgh, Indiana's Jeff Gordon. That's a pretty tenuous <laughs> link. Let's put it that way. Uh, but, but they maximized it for all it was worth. Um, the stars, they started coming from road racing in the eighties 
Um, and if you look at Allenser Jr. and Michael Andretti, they don't have to be foreigners to be road racing stars. Um, and that's their question: where where are the drivers going to come from? Because they've they've got a they've got a core group of drivers now, and they're not. A lot of it is just because the sport hasn't been as popular and and you know just mainstream as it was a long time ago. But if you look, you've got Scott Dixon, Will Power, Pagano, Hunter Ray, um, Graham Rahal to extend. He's kind of in the middle because he's you know still a younger guy in his 30s and everything. But they do have a, a good core group of older championship pedigreed stars, and they've got a really good group of young guys coming in. And the problem with the is, is that the American audiences just aren't very receptive to a lot of these new kids when they come in. You know, you go back and and uh, certainly in the card era, I mean, Zanardi came in, he was only 30 or so. Montoya was 23, 24 the couple, first couple of years he raced here in 99 and 2000. And, and, and some of the IRL rhetoric about the, you know, Americanism and all that, it, it, it ramped up an anti-foreign sentiment. Right, exactly. Uh, and and it's, a, it's an illusion to say that these are rich foreigners. They were just harder working. Um, the business model for race car drivers changed a long time ago, and you see it in NASCAR now. Um, it's not incumbent upon the team. I mean, very few. The top level, the Penske's and Ganassi's are still capable of going out and getting a sponsor and, you know, having enough budget to hire the best driver and, and everything. But the business model for all, for all racing, honestly, has become the driver has a large responsibility in, in raising the budget. Being a race driver is more than driving the car. It's, it's you know, as you know, it's, it's about being a corporate spokesperson at the highest level and everything. So I'm, I'm hoping that IndyCar fans will be more open-minded about these young kids coming in. This Alex Pillow that won the race to, to start the year, he's 24 years old. He's a, you know, he's unbelievably smart and well-spoken. And, and uh, I'd never heard of the kid until he came over here last year. I, I mean, I occasionally look at the Japanese, uh, you know, the Formula Nippon uh, standings or highlights or whatever, but um, quality race car drivers, they don't, they don't necessarily come from Bloomington Speedway. They, they come from all over the world. Um, Polo came from, from Japan um, and a European background and everything. And I think in general, if, if people would just be more open-minded and, and make these kids stars uh, it, it, just because they're not wearing a pair of overalls and, and you know, um, that has a lot to do with, the, you know, the attitudes of the fans. But I mean, you look at the fans and, and, they, they demand a, you know, a 20 car pack with a photo finish and 58 lead changes. It's, it's the real expectations can be unrealistic sometimes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> this may be a hard question to answer, but, you know, as IndyCar has been ramping up slowly to, to moderately, slowly to moderately over the last four five, six years, we've seen F1 take a dive. Will we ever see a day in our lifetime or maybe 50 years from now or what have you that IndyCar may eventually overtake F1 as the premier open wheel series in the world? Well, I think unless Liberty media completely botches it, no, um, you know, in it's, it's, they like to say, Oh, look, our ratings are up 10% over last year. Well, they're still down 90% from where they were in 1995. Right. Um, you know, in, in, in the mid nineties, IndyCar racing was, you know, in terms of its sponsorship, its attendance, television ratings, all those things, they were 
do much better compared to NASCAR in this country. And, and uh, the series got a lot more attention around the world. It's, it's never going to get, it, it, it won't get back there. Uh, I mean, times have changed. Even if you had lightning strike again and, and Lewis Hamilton came over and started racing Indy cars next year, I still don't think you'd get the Nigel Mansell effect of 1993 over again. Um, but there you, you raise a good point, And that is, is that IndyCar racing went through its big decline in the nineties. It, it, you know, it, it did its dirty lawn. It got its laundry out in public and it's, since 2008 it's been slowly bouncing back and and the indy 500 it's really apparent there i mean they had the advantage of a number of anniversaries to celebrate at the speedway they had the 2009 to 11 centennial era between the start of the speedway and the first 500 and then of course they had the 100 500 and that was big because they sold it out completely for the first time in in many years so the Indy 500 has been on this nice gradual uptick and, and the series itself, it's, it's held steady. I mean, the numbers aren't where they were 25 years ago, but at least they are better than where they were 10 years ago. And Formula One can't say that, at least internationally, and NASCAR can't say that. I mean, goodness, NASCAR's ratings peaked in 2005 and, and they're still on the way down. Um, IndyCar, by being at least holding steady and having moderate growth, they're outperforming the market for auto racing, but it's a tough market. Very true. Very true. You have been so generous with your time. I just have one final question to ask you. And this kind of goes back with what you did with your book. Uh, you know, you mentioned you had a number of people near the back of the book. You gave them kind of like a free forum to talk about IndyCar racing. And so I want to give you a free forum talking about either the sport, the book itself, just anything that we maybe haven't covered that you feel is important to to get across to both you know the listeners and the readers uh, about why this book was so important and in, in where we are in, in the IndyCar world today. I mean, feel free. It's your, it's your, uh, it's your microphone now. <laughs> yeah. In 50 words or less, my book explains why in 2021 IndyCar racing looks a lot like it did in 1996 under cart. That's, that's very, very true. Very, very true. Um, oh. And it talks about why it was so difficult to get here. But at the same time, there is a positive um, outlook. It's, probably it's, it's a happy ending. And when I was writing it, I, you know, I, I really started in about 2017. And I got to 2019 to the point where I about had it finished. And, and, and I'm like, well, how am I going to end this thing? And Mr. Penske gave it an ending. Uh, but at the same time, he gave it a beginning. Right. He gave it the new beginning it needed. He gave it, I feel, the closure that it needed to symbolically just shut the door on everything in the past. And he gave it so much optimism because nobody personifies the Indy 500 more than Roger Penske. I mean, nobody cares about that race and that place more than him. And that's the one thing you have to say about Indy 500 fan. And it's frustrating as hell to me because they're place fans. They're Indianapolis Motor Speedway fans. They're not necessarily race fans. They follow the Indy 500. They like to go out and party at the Speedway and everything. But they're not supporting the series by buying tickets to Phoenix or watching Long Beach on TV and everything. And, and that's that's the frustrating thing to me. And that's the message to me that I would get out there. If you do read the book because you're an Indy 500 fan, because you want to know, you know, about the dirt, about the politics, you're not going to learn dirt about the Holman family or anything. But what I hope I get across is that people have a lot of different visions for IndyCar racing, what it should be ovals, road races, high-tech, low-tech, whatever. 
we all love the sport. We all love IndyCar racing. We all want to see it succeed. Um, I'm happy right now because it looks more a lot like it did when I thought it was at its best. It is a good mix of road racing, oval racing, international, domestic. Um, still needs a little bit more of a domestic effort, but you can't force these things. I mean, if you know, we you try. Uh, things need to work out organically. IndyCar racing, it's great right now. Um, it's, it's, yes, it's a spec series. So some of the closeness is artificial, but it's just, it's the best racing out there. Uh, it's not as contrived as NASCAR or formula one. The wings don't open up on the cars for people to pass and they don't reset the order a third of the way through the race and, and have a commercial pit stop and everything. It's still real and it's still honest racing. And, and, I still think it's it's the best racing out there. And if, if you do love NASCAR or Formula One, I say you give it a chance because it's the best of it all. And you'll definitely like the book as well. Speaking of which, the book is Indy Split, the big money battle that nearly destroyed Indy Racing. John Orovitz, uh, the author. And it's I, I noticed in the, in the press release, it's the release date is the day of the Indy 500, May 3rd, Sunday, May 30th. Um, will the book be available a few days, weeks ahead of time, or will it be, you know, at the speedway where people can buy it if they, if they come to the 500 I mean, where are people going to be able to, to get it and how quickly or how soon will you be able to get the book? Cause I'm sure a lot of people, especially the, the, the middle aged to older fans who remember back to the split, you know, in 96, they're going to be very eager to read something about like this. Well, I mean, the simple answer, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, you can get it directly from the publisher, and this is probably going to be your quickest way uh, through octanepress.com, like octane in your fuel press.com. Uh, I think you can still use the code ND20 and get 20% off. Uh, it is available through Amazon, um, and uh, it'll be on uh, at Barnes and Noble and such as well. I forgot the other part of your question. I had something pithy to say about it, too. <laughs> Just about, you know, the, the fact that there'll be so many, uh, you know, middle-aged and older. Oh, and then, oh, the May 30th bit. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was Octane's idea to bring it out in May 30th, which is the, of course, the traditional Indy 500 date. Um, but it's, it's coincidental that it's coming out the 25th anniversary of May, 1996, which of course the, the center, the focal point of it all, when they had the dueling 500 mile races on May 26th, 1996, so that's purely coincidental, but I'd, I'd have to say it's a happy coincidence. Exactly. What, what's next? For, before I let you go, what's next for you? What, what, what's uh, another book on, on, in the plans? What are, what, are you, what's, what are you planning on working on next? Well, I'm going to spend the next couple months, hopefully, giving this book a proper launch. And, right. and honestly, I have, to, I have to figure out the next step. So if any of you are out there who are looking for someone with writing, research, and editing skills with a particular specialty in auto racing, I'm your man. Uh, but I, I do hopefully have some additional projects in the works. Um, if, if you like keeping an eye on, on my work on the current scene, I do most of my stuff is in IMSA these days, sports car racing. I contribute to IMSA's website. Um, yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm a single parent. I have a 14-year-old son, and uh, we like to do things together. So um, besides looking for the next project, just trying to keep my son on the straight and narrow and, and get him on to the next phase of his life so that he has a more uh, productive living than his father did. <laughs> right, right. I assume he's an IndyCar fan. You've got to admit, you've yet to have made him an IndyCar fan, I would assume. Well, he was more of a racing fan when he was four than he is now, but uh, <laughs> he, he's more into airplanes these days. 
okay. And you know, the one thing about in conclusion here, John, the one thing I, I really um, admire about you is you live three blocks from the speedway. You can walk, you don't have to worry about fighting traffic. You don't have to worry about parking. You can walk there on race day. You'd be there in 10 minutes, you know? So, uh, you know, I really admire that you, you have that ab ability to, to be so close. Can I park in your driveway if I come down to the races here? You know? <laughs> anyway. uh, you'd, be, you'd be surprised. And that's honestly, it's, it's one of the main reasons I moved here because um, I just want, I just, I'm not an early morning person. I hate setting in a five o'clock or four o'clock alarm and I don't, I don't sleep worth a, worth a hoot. So I decided I wanted to be able to walk to work on race day. And uh, I actually ride my bike over most days. It takes me about five minutes to ride from here and park at the base of the media center and, and walk on up to my seat. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, John, thank you ever so much for taking the time. Again, the book is Indie Split. The Big Money Battle That Nearly Destroyed Indie Racing by John Orbitz. And again, you can go to octanepress.com. It comes out Sunday, May 30th, the day of the Indianapolis 500. And really have enjoyed the conversation today, John. And I wish you the best with the book. And uh, I'm sure, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to be down there for the 500 this year. I haven't been there for the last couple of years. But uh, uh, of course, last year, nobody was there <laughs> from an immediate standpoint. But um, you know, looking forward to catching up with you. And again, thanks ever so much. Best wishes with the book as well, too. Well, thanks for the, for the time and the, and the mic, Jerry, and uh, I'll save a space, a parking space in the front yard for you. You got it, brother. I'll even give you 20 bucks for that. How's that sound? <laughs> that or a case of beer, right? <laughs> okay, that sounds good. All right, we'll be back with more of the Racing Beat right after this here on the Believe Podcast Network. What a great discussion we just had with John Orovitz. If you're an IndyCar fan, you definitely want to get your hands on this fascinating read, Indy Split. Sure, the split was 25 years ago, but John weaves together things as if they just happened. He tells a number of great stories, interviewed a number of some of IndyCar Racing's biggest names, and recalls the history of the split and the eventual reunification in 2008. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, you can pre-order your copy of Indy Split at OctanePress.com, and it's being released, that's right, on the day of the Indianapolis 500, the 105th running, this Sunday, May 30th. Well, that's it for this edition of the Racing Beat Podcast. We'll have a new special Indy 500 preview edition with myself and Michael Eubanks later this week, just in time for the 105th running of the greatest spectacle in racing. Thanks, as always, for listening, everyone. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, and we'll catch you next time right here on the Racing Beat. And as the late Tom Carnegie used to say at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, he's on it. Take care, everyone. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube